if we continue to do the science and it continues to be done in a rigorous way, then we're going to be well positioned um, to actually make precision medicine for mental health a reality. That's Dr. Rian Moore. I caught up with her about digital phenotyping and how technology can improve the assessment of chronic medical problems in the delivery of care. So we'll hear more of that conversation later. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, June 14th. I'm here with Annalie Armstrong to share this week's top biopharma and medtech industry news. Annalie, thanks for doing the news rundown with me today. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. So ADC Therapeutics has decided to halt a phase two trial for a drug called Zinlanta. What happened? Well, the study had enrolled 40 participants before ADC made the decision to pause it. They were conducting the trial to test the drug in combination with Roche's rituxan for patients with previously untreated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Zoe Becker reported this story. She wrote that what happened was during the trial, there were 12 severe respiratory events and unfortunately seven patient deaths. So were those respiratory events and deaths caused by the trial? Well, after an investigation, it was determined that 11 out of the 12 events were not related or unlikely to be linked to the treatment, including six of the fatalities. The patients who passed away were all older than 80 and had pre-existing respiratory or cardiac conditions like obtrusive pulmonary disease or pulmonary edema. So if those events weren't linked to the treatment, is ADC going to continue? ADC Therapeutics plans to take a look at all the collected data and determine their next course of action. It has informed the FDA and the European Medicines Agency about the situation and doesn't anticipate releasing any additional trial data before the end of the year. Um, But in other big news, Tandem Diabetes Care announced this week that it has earned FDA clearance for the Moby insulin pump. This could be the next big thing in the world of diabetes technology. Annalie, tell us what happened. Yeah, so this is a big deal because of its small size. (laughs) Moby is about half the size of Tandem's other insulin pumps. It's small enough to fit inside the small coin pocket of a pair of jeans. That makes it the tiniest insulin pump on the market. Mm -hmm, That is pretty small. The mini pump also differs from Tandem's other devices because of its wireless charging capabilities and the fact that it can be completely controlled by a user's personal iPhone. Like Tandem's previous pumps, Moby is equipped with the company's control IQ algorithm, which uses readings from a separate glucose monitor to automatically adjust the pump's insulin delivery for people with type 1 diabetes. Andrea Park reported the story. She wrote that the Moby device was cleared for use by anyone aged 6 and older who uses insulin to manage their diabetes. The U.S. launch will begin with a limited release later this year, before opening up to full commercial availability in early 2024. So let's move on to another story in med tech. This one's about Illumina. So Illumina closed a multi-billion dollar purchase of Grail. It did so despite antitrust objections. So now, as punishment, the European Union is hitting Illumina with a record high fine. Teresa, tell us about this. Connor Hale reported this story. He wrote that Illumina is now on the hook to pay 432 million euros. That's almost 500 million U.S. dollars. The fine represents the maximum amount allowed under EU law for jumping the gun and uh, adds up to 10% of the company's total annual income. 
although Illumina released a statement this week saying that it plans to appeal. But this penalty hardly comes as a surprise, right? True. Uh, Illumina was warned of the potential bill for months, and last year it set aside $453 million to pay what it described in SEC filings as legal contingencies. And for the first time, the target of an acquisition, that would be Grail, has been punished for breaking the EU's merger rules. The European Commission described it as a symbolic fine, and it fined Grail 1,000 euros. And in the U.S., Illumina has also been ordered by the FTC to unravel its ownership of Grail, though Illumina is appealing that decision as well. Okay, so the next story is about anti-tidget checkpoint inhibitors. These are a relatively new approach to cancer treatment. It blocks a protein called tidget, which tells immune cells to slow down. So by blocking tidget, the immune cells have a better chance at fighting cancer. It was only a couple of years ago that these were being hailed as the future of immuno-oncology, but there's been some high-profile trial failures by Roche last year that put a damper on those hopes, and it seems like that streak is continuing. So what happened next, Annalie? So James Waldron reported this story. He wrote that earlier this week, Novartis confirmed that it had pulled out of a collaboration with Bygene that was testing a Tigit drug called Osaperlimab. It was supposed to be t- Novartis's big shot at the Tigit space. It paid Bygene $300 million in 2021 to lay claim to the drug. It means that Novartis will no longer proceed with its two studies on Osaperlimab and variations of lung and breast cancer. I'm always impressed by how you say drug names, Annalie. You just like say it right in the sentence naturally. It's because when I write it, I say it over and over again to try to figure it out. So it's it takes practice. <laughs> All right, Teresa, the last story is from Fraser Kansteiner. What did he have to say? Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech are still fighting over their COVID-19 vaccines. This week, Moderna reportedly filed new lawsuits in the patent litigation against Pfizer and BioNTech. It did this in Ireland and Belgium. The Irish court is scheduled to hear the case early next year. This whole complex web of mRNA patent litigation began last August when Moderna first sued Pfizer and BioNTech in the United States and Germany. Pfizer and BioNTech responded with a countersuit in December. And what's more, Alnylam Pharmaceuticals has also sued both Pfizer and Moderna over claims of vaccine patent infringement, which both Pfizer and Moderna have attempted to refute. So there's a lot of fighting going on. (laughs) And that's it. All right. I've got an important announcement. You'll want to grab a pencil for this one. Write these dates down. October 16, 17, and 18. Those are the dates of our annual Fierce Biotech Summit. It's a time where leaders and executives come together to discuss the future of the industry, AI and drug development, unique deal-making strategies, the latest innovation in oncology. We'll be covering all the important topics, so don't miss it. Fierce Biotech Summit. And also, don't forget that nominations for the Fierce 15 close today. That's right, there will not be an extension. We're accepting nominations across all therapeutic areas and modalities, the best and brightest in biotech. So now you've got two things to do when you get to your desk, and I'll put links to all that info in the show notes. Digital phenotyping. From the moment I first learned about this field, I was hooked, fascinated, 
It combines technology and healthcare, but maybe not quite like you might be thinking. Think about digital tools like smartphones and wearables that are with you every day, engaging with you almost every moment of our lives. These devices are constantly collecting data on our body, behavior, and environment. Oftentimes, the data is collected passively. You don't even have to enter it into the phone. And all that data gives insight into our physical and mental health. What if it could track disease progression or evaluate the effectiveness of a treatment or even diagnose chronic illnesses before a doctor could? Well, I talked with Dr. Rianne Moore, an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego, and co-founder of two digital health startups. We chatted about the state of digital phenotyping, the challenges, and what the future holds. And here's that conversation. Dr. Moore, thanks so much for talking with me today. Yeah, no, happy to be here with you, Teresa. You and I first spoke in 2020 about a month after the pandemic lockdowns went into effect, and mental health was top of mind. And at the time, I wrote an article about this emerging field of digital phenotyping and which is leveraging smartphone usage data to create like a digital proxy for human behavior. And I described a future world where we would walk into a doctor's office, the nurse takes your temperature, blood pressure, and then syncs your cell phone data. And the doctor uses all those metrics to assess your health. So how close to reality is that vision? I feel like we are a bit closer in some ways. Um, We've seen over the last, you know, six to eight months, really industry seeming to kind of soften on the hype of digital phenotyping. Um, Two of the leading companies in the space, MindStrong and Pear, went bankrupt. Um, But we have seen a lot of progress on the scientific front. And really, the National Institute of Health has been making just a ton of investment um, in the field in terms of new grant funding. And then here at the University of California, San Diego, just about a month ago, they launched um, a new Center for Health Innovation in which they're describing it as a mission control center. It's going to be built to be completely integrated into the healthcare system of UC. SD Health, um, with the goal of innovating new health service models using digital health tools, um, Mm -hmm. as well as creating new digital tools that expand access to care. Um, And I really see this new Center for Health Innovation, which I haven't really seen any other models of this yet. So I think it's really innovative and super exciting to be here as it's being launched. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that. I do want to talk about this new center a little bit later, but I wanted to just continue to talk a little bit more about broadly about digital phenotyping and what it is. There's been a lot of research coming out about digital phenotyping and I and I try to keep up with it, but that it could be used in a number of ways. I saw a study come out that said that said it could help predict diabetes. Another one that said an algorithm could analyze a selfie and predict heart disease. But a lot of this work in in this field, in your work particularly, is focused on mental health or cognition. Why is that? Yeah, well, because, you know, if we think about these digital health tools, so our smartphones and wearables, and if we think about these tools, they really are an extension of ourselves, 
right? We carry our smartphones with us everywhere. The way we interact with our smartphone really is just a um, behavioral representation of our mental health and brain health at that time. And so I think it's pretty exciting thinking about how we can use these smart devices to understand brain health, um, really trying to track markers of you know, depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. see if we can detect relapse in an illness um, just by analyzing users' digital habits. Um, for mm-hmm. example, some, some work we've been doing with KeyWise is we use data collected from people's individual smartphones. Um, we collect data on how they type. So things like their typing speed, backspace usage, autocorrect. Um, we don't actually collect any words they type, but just these patterns of typing behavior. And we've been able to create a digital biomarker for um, cognition based on just this keystroke data. Mm-hmm. The phrase digital biomarker is interesting to me because it has the word bio in it and it's it seems like that doesn't work. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, but there but it makes sense too, and there aren't really many effective biomarkers, not digital ones, but biological ones or biological tests for mental health disorders. I mean, there's a few exceptions, but generally speaking, you couldn't get like a blood test or an MRI or something to find out your risk for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or things like that, ADHD. Um, But your work relies on the idea that our behaviors and our phones are linked so closely with how our minds work. Can you give me a few specific examples that I might or our listeners might connect with? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of our studies um, that we're doing right now, we're capturing all kinds of data from smartphones um, using active data collection methods. So digital phenotyping, um, there still really isn't a consensus definition on it. Some people say it's a combination of of collecting data actively where a person engages with their smartphone to contribute data. Others say it's only passive data collection, just capturing those data streams. I define it kind of as really just, um, you know, using data from smart devices to create this holistic digital picture of health and incorporating um, all the different kinds of data streams, both active and passive data. So mm-hmm. um, setting the stage that way, one of our studies were using just active data um, by how people contribute surveys multiple times a day, um, a term we called ecological momentary assessment, as well mm-hmm. as um, cognitive tasks on their phone multiple times a day. We're mm-hmm. using this data to study mental and cognitive health related to pesticide exposure among young adults. So we're having people complete these surveys and mobile cognitive tests over the course of 10 days, 10 different periods over a two-year period in a region in rural Ecuador that is known um, to be to have high pesticide exposure, exposure. It's one of the largest producers of roses in the world. And so we know when high spray season is and when low spray season is. And so we're collecting this data during both high and low spray seasons um, to give us a picture of, you know, are mental health symptoms 
changing during high pesticide spray seasons? Wow. Mm-hmm. Is this a transient change? And does it go back to baseline um, during low spray seasons? Or is this kind of, a, are we seeing a cumulative effect of changes over time? Um, so I think that's a really exciting way to apply these digital phenotyping methods to a population health study. Yeah. And now that study is a little bit different than a study that might then offer an immediate intervention. For example, there's some studies that have shown that language use on social media could predict suicide. So it could detect a certain type of language and and maybe offer some sort of intervention in the right moment. Or speech and breathing patterns. There's another study that showed that speech and breathing patterns detected by phones can be early indicators of opioid overdoses. But the work you're talking about now is like, is strictly research. We're learning about these pesticides and how that impacts these individuals at different times of the year. Yeah, that's correct. Although it has been exciting with QIs in that um, when we've adopted, you know, the research to a commercial app is now we're providing brain health metrics based on these typing patterns to folks in real time on their smartphone. Mm-hmm. And I, I took a look at your website before our talk today. And on your website, you said you were using in-the-wild technology. So that would be the smartphone. What are other examples of in-the-wild technology that, that you could tap into for this type of work? Yeah, sure. So wearables are a great resource to do digital phenotyping data. They give us such rich data on physical activity, sleep, physiological measurements, things like heart rate, heart rate variability, Um, That new Apple watches, I don't have one yet, but they have so many amazing sensors built in. You can even get, um, you can be doing ECGs on your watch as well as, you know, blood oxygenation levels, all of these things. Um, Other sensors, you know, there's there's different patches people can wear and put on. Um, There's one company that has come out with a sensor to track track blood alcohol content Mm -hmm. passively just through a wrist wearable. Um, and then things you can put into your clothes. So there's, um, you know, connected shirts and sports bras. And a lot of these are still in the fitness domain, but I can see a lot of great applications as well for mental health research. Yeah, it still feels really futuristic to me, but but you're right. It, it is mind-boggling how much just my phone can do for me each day, every day, both good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, about, you know, just people wanting to contribute all this data to learn more about themselves. Um, We're so used to just consenting for everything to get access to the app of the day that we want. Um, But I think that with digital phenotyping, it's, you know, using data for good versus using it Mm -hmm. for targeted advertising. And if we can use it, um, you know, for, a precision medicine approach and really helping patients be empowered in their medical journeys or making treatment decisions or in understanding their own behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just really exciting. So I I do want to talk about data privacy a little bit. Our phones collect a ton of information. They track how much time we spend on each app and when. They track our geolocation, our movements. Some websites have cookies that track what we look at, and that data is used to predict our behaviors for research that you're talking about, but also to manipulate them by selling us stuff or getting us to buy things or keeping us active on a site or on an app longer and longer. But many people who own a smartphone are 
only vaguely aware of what's happening to their data. And I'll admit that I'm not totally <laughs> knowledgeable about what's happening to my data. Uh, it's really hard to understand the data sharing agreements that we have to consent to to use these apps. It's also hard to really understand the problems involved with data sharing, perhaps even more so for people with mental health issues. And so how can we address the concern that digital phenotyping could further relax our attitudes towards this type of surveillance? Yeah, that's a really important question. And some of the work that we've been doing is trying to figure out the best way to share with users what they're consenting to. You know, people who who um, are employing these digital health tools, I think it it is important to get user feedback and work with the population you intend to use it to figure out the best ways to communicate exactly what people are contributing, how their data will be used, um, as well as thinking about what information is going to be shared back to them, which is something you touched on earlier too, right? Like, what is it doing for them? Are we just taking data from people or are there different things we can be doing through the devices to give them kind of in real time feedback um, on their data and what that means for their mental health and well-being? Could you talk about how perhaps along the same lines, just to kind of dive into that a little bit more, how you could uh, think about compensating patients for their data or earning the trust with patients, especially at a time right now with distrust in the medical establishment is so high. So for our research studies, what we always try to do is really establish trust within the community. We engage with the community frequently. I have some studies where we're collecting digital phenotyping data among Hispanics, Latinos who are at risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so that's a particular population that, you know, has significant distrust in the medical community. Um, and now we're asking them to contribute not just blood and other health data, but also all this data from their phones and, you know, their watches and, and data from their daily lives. Um, so one thing we do is we frequently give talks in the community. We go to community fairs. We really engage with the community to help um, establish trust with them. We compensate people for their participation, but we also provide back results from blood um, tests, for example, which can save mm -hmm. them money. Some of our studies, we do neuroimaging and we can provide those images back, which is a huge cost savings for the participant. It really just seems very important to be working within the communities to establish that trust. And then thinking about what data we want to ask people to give us. Um, there was a there was a Google study that came out a couple years ago where they had collected, I think, data from like every sensor built into the phone um, to try to find markers of depression. And when I was reading it, I was thinking, this is not something I would consent to. I'm okay consenting to tracking my GPS or, you know, wearing my wearable, giving that data the keystroke data, maybe some voice biomarker data, if it's not every time I'm on the phone, but if it's prescribed in that kind of way. But we have to be careful. There's, I think there are you know, some people who think we need to collect every single data stream because we can, mm -hmm. but really keeping in mind what's the minimum we need to answer certain questions. Yeah. And we definitely 
can people can get away with collecting every single data stream because like we were talking about earlier often you don't know or understand what you're consenting to completely mhm mhm uh, my colleague Anastasia Gladkovskia recently had Dennis Wall as a guest on our sister podcast which is called Podnosis um and it was a great interview. Dennis Wall uh, created an app that helps physicians diagnose autism. But over the years, his work has seen a lot of scrutiny, specifically because the studies, some of the early studies couldn't be replicated with the same results. Well, his app was eventually FDA approved, uh, I think, in 2021. Um, but I wanted to, thinking about that, I wanted to talk a little bit about how to research digital therapeutics. Could you perhaps describe the thought process or things that you might address that go into designing a robust study on a digital therapeutic, a study that takes into account things like digital placebo effects, patient diversity, the setting, the real world versus the clinical setting, and certainly a study that can be replicated by other research teams? Sure. So I think the first step in designing a robust study is making sure you know upfront exactly the outcomes data you want to get. One of the biggest advantages um, of doing remote studies and using digital phenotyping methods is the scalability of it and that you can get data from lots and lots of people and using smartphones, which is really the most ubiquitous device in the world, you're able to get a diverse group of research participants um, and sometimes people who've been historically underrepresented in research. But having a really strong a priori hypothesis about what data streams you want to collect among those groups um, and then figuring out what data streams are going to be important to answer your research questions. Um, and then... So making sure that the protocol is streamlined enough that it can be used by, you know, the, the participants of interest for the study. Mm -hmm. um, things that we take for granted here in the United States, like everyone having a smartphone and just, you know, us having access to downloading whatever apps we want, isn't the case for some other countries. Um, and mm -hmm. so these big multi-site clinical trials that occur globally, they've encountered some issues, especially in some of the Eastern European countries where there's strict limitations on smartphone ownership and, and then what can be accessed. Another thing that needs to be considered is just Wi-Fi. One of the issues we ran into early on with our Ecuador study is it's in a rural community on the side of a mountain and people don't have good Wi-Fi when they're at their homes. So we had to reprogram some of our technology to make it compatible offline um, and to be able to store more data offline until the participants are in town or in a location mm -hmm. where they can connect to a strong Wi-Fi signal for the data to be uploaded. Mm -hmm. um, and then thinking about reproducibility as well, um, you know, really for something to be considered a digital biomarker for mood or cognition, you want it to be something that can be reproducible. And currently, um, a lot of digital phenotyping studies have ended up with poor results, I think, because of low data quality. But I think part of that is because 
individual groups are still all doing their own data processing and writing their own algorithms and making all their Mm -hmm. own analytic decisions. And this can really challenge reproducibility of digital biomarker data. So I think there's a need for a better handling of collectively, you know, best practice guidelines for how we how we process um, and analyze this data so that we can mm-hmm. find reproducible um, biomarkers. Traditionally, diagnosing mental illness has relied on self-reported experiences like pen and paper quizzes, cognitive tests, assessments conducted at a clinic. But what has your work shown about the potential of using smartphones to assess human behavior as compared to these more traditional methods? Yeah, so I think it still is really important to get the patient's perspective, right? And self-reported outcomes are very important in the field of psychiatry and psychology. one thing that we've shown using people with schizophrenia as an example mm-hmm. is we can capture information about um, their lived behavior and the symptoms of their disease just based on using their GPS data. So we can see how frequently they're leaving their home. Um, we found that for people who have symptoms of schizophrenia, that they're spending significantly more time at home than people without schizophrenia. When we couple the GPS data with survey data we can get from the phones, we're seeing that they're having a lot more anxiety and negative mood symptoms around leaving the home and being out of the home, especially when they're going to a clinical appointment. So if you think about treatment adherence, okay, if, you know, how, how are we going to get people to go to their appointments if, if it causes a lot of anxiety and distress, right? Mm-hmm. So that's just one example of how we've used um, just the data from phones. And then certainly it could also improve access to care, to diagnostic care, and also to treatment for people who might live in remote areas far away from a specialist, or maybe they have lack of transportation or they have a job where they're working the whole time. These specialists are open. They can't get an appointment. So these digital tools could improve access to that sort of care and diagnostics. I want to shift to talking about the field of digital phenotyping as a whole in general. And you had mentioned MindStrong and PEAR earlier. Since you and I spoke in 2020, Digital mental health has really exploded, probably motivated by the pandemic. It went from like a specialized subject to top of mind pretty quickly. But then recently, there's MindStrong and Paratherapeutics who created ways to use smartphones to monitor mental health and even provide digital interventions. Pair got an FDA-approved app, but um, earlier this year, both companies announced that, that they're done. Pair filed for bankruptcy protection. So it looks like we've come to a point in the field where digital mental health may be struggling, but what does this mean for the rest of the field? The idea of leveraging data from smartphone use patterns is pretty amazing given that there's so many smartphones, but how could these setbacks bring about a change in how we approach the next generation of digital diagnostic and treatment tools? 
Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And I think it's just, it's too bad, you know, what has happened with MindStrong and Pear. I think what happened in both of those cases, at least from my, you know, perspective as an outsider, (laughs) is they were both pressured to scale too quickly because there was so much excitement around what Mm -hmm. they were doing. You know, first to field usually isn't first to success. I don't know if that's the exact expression, but um, so I think that there's going to be a lot more scrutiny now, and I've seen it from investors, but I'm still really hopeful um, for the field as a whole, especially with really the investment the National Institutes of Health has been making on it. So Mm -hmm. the NIMH recently had a call for applications where they're committing $30 million in fiscal year 2024 for advancing digital phenotyping methods for mental health. I think if we can get the science right, then industry opportunities are bound to follow. Yeah. I think, as I mentioned earlier, that digital health certainly was bolstered by the pandemic. And um, VC funding in that field saw an all-time high in 2021. And we know that telehealth grew the way it did because of those stay-at-home orders. But I think it's also worth noting that digital health has remained steady in the funding area despite other sectors falling. And so, you know, digital phenotyping is falls under digital mental health. How do you think it compares to digital health funding as a whole? Is it keeping up despite these setbacks? You know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's interesting because um, when I talk to my colleagues in the digital mental health space, there really still aren't all that many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of it's a still pretty niche. Group. Pretty niche. Yeah. And we've actually been talking about ways to, to increase um, public awareness of of our field um, and to promote, um, you know, more investment in it. Well, you had mentioned earlier that UC San Diego just launched a new Center for Health Innovation to focus on remote assessment methods. Is there a movement in the field of psychiatry, of mental health to decentralize clinical trials and move to these more remote trials? And how is this going to affect your work as a whole? Yeah. So there has been a push by the field towards decentralized clinical trials. It makes so much sense. And I feel like, you know, as a, as a community, those of us in psychiatry are kind of slow to adopt sometimes, (laughs) you know, and the ability to collect real world evidence via digital health methodology, Mm -hmm. we could actually see then, you know, if someone's starting a new medication for depression, for example, instead of only gathering data as we traditionally do, kind of pre, maybe midpoint and post trial, if we can be collecting data in real time continuously and unobtrusively, um, in larger sample sizes, we can move the field forward so much more quickly. Um, the, the potential to fast track, you know, therapeutics to market is incredible. Yeah. So I, I think I have to ask you the big question of what is digital phenotyping? Because there's still not yet a consensus on the term, if it should include active data, 
like answering questions or responding to prompts or just passive data, like analyzing our interactions with the screen or geocoded activity, speech patterns. Uh, where does your opinion fall? Yeah, um, well, the first thing we need to do as a field is come up with a consensus definition. <laughs> um, how I define it is a multidisciplinary field of science that studies the impact of technology on human behavior and health. Mm-hmm. I believe it can incorporate both active and passive data collection. And even what we call passive data collection, I'm doing air quotes, even though you can't see them <laughs> on air. Um <laughs> requires it's just less active data collection right it still requires some effort from participants whether it's putting on a wearable or mm-hmm. opening an app so the data pushes you know after they've had to install the app right so nothing mm-hmm. is purely passive right and they're certainly aware that their data is being collected yeah. looking into this before our talk today i learned a new word tapography which is another fun word that means the analysis of our interactions with the touch screen, those swipes, the taps, throwing it against the wall. It doesn't do what you want it to do. <laughs> Tapography. <laughs> it sounds like it should be a dance or something. <laughs> yeah. As a field, we've been talking about moving to precision medicine for years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we continue to do the science and it continues to be done in a rigorous way, then we're going to be well-positioned um, to actually make precision medicine for mental health a reality. Great. Well, thanks so much for talking with me. This is really interesting. Yeah, nice chatting with you. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.